huge delight to worship with you this morning. This is the time in our service when we press into the preaching of the word. Please don't take for granted that you have each other, that we have the freedom to do this right now week after week. It is God by his word that governs our church, uh, that inspires and counsels our souls, that teaches us who we are and how we should live. And so we, we give time to hearing from him through his word. If I do a good job with you today as a pastor, you will understand a little better, a little deeper text of scripture will have come alive to you. Uh, we're preaching through the book of Acts and ambitiously today uh, preaching through a long chunk of scripture. So the way that I'll do this when we get to the text itself is I'll read some and then I'll put some of those key phrases up here so you're seeing where the words are coming from. Uh, let's just pray together before we do this. Father, we are weak people and needy people, and you know our frame. You have seen fit to even have sinners be the ones who preach, that we give our attention to the words of someone that we're probably smarter than and can say it better than and are holier than. But in this exercise, week after week, you are humbling all of us to make much only of your son, Jesus. So please let that be done, both in the speaking and in the hearing of your word this morning. That's my prayer. Be gracious to answer, I pray. Amen. Um, okay, let me start here with this. Set a good stage for you. How many people in here would consider themselves to be an early adopter? Early adopter. Have you heard that phrase before? So... You just love trying new stuff as soon as possible. You don't find yourself asking, what's it going to cost? Is it going to work? Should I be doing this? It's shiny. It's new. I'm in. Who has that kind of personality? Any really early adopters? You're the ones that stand in lines overnight to get the new thing. Okay, now who would self-identify as the opposite of an early adopter. You would be totally cool if everything stayed exactly like it was in the spring of 1982. <laughs> Forever. Okay, Lori Coughlin is in. Any change at all just kind of makes your heart nervous. You have tons of fears about what's it going to cost and is the new thing going to work and should I be doing this? You're just now getting comfortable with email. You figured that out now? Somebody's like, I'm going to text you, and you're like, don't do that. That is cutting-edge technology. I'm not there yet. You find it safer and easier to go with what you know. The year that we began planting Seven Mile Road, I was also just getting started with the day job that I still work in a finance office. And the CFO at the time was this sweet Solid, um, reliable, trustworthy, 67, 68-year-old grandfather who was running the finances in this place. We got along so well. I was so appreciative of him. He was so kind in getting me up and running. But he had been on the job for 25 or so years, and he had not yet made the move from pencil and ledger to computer and spreadsheet, his office was filled with these legal-sized 
green, hard-covered, yellow-lined paper where he would take his pencil, number two, sharpen it, and write in those transactions. And of course, here I come, fresh with my BU MBA and my pivot skills, pivot table skills on Microsoft Excel. I was like, what is going on in this office? And I said, "Uh, Mr. Hurley, Microsoft Excel will do all this for you without the writing. And he was not having it. He was very hesitant to make this switch from old to new. He was not sure that it would work. He was very afraid that the math would go bad or or we would have a bad subtotal in there and everything would get crazy. He was very afraid that we would lose the file and then not be able to hold it and touch it and find it. What did my boss need if he was going to make this jump from old to new? He needed some helpful and loving assurances from me. He needed somebody to make it as clear as possible to him that this new way works, and it actually works better than the old way. It's okay for you to jump into this. In love for him, I tried to give him those assurances, not really to too much avail before retirement, but we worked in those directions. Okay, so that is a very simple, innocuous illustration of change, real easy. Sometimes change gets presented to us in a way that is much more serious. And the pressure that we feel in moving from old to new is not just, is it going to work better? Is it going to work at all? But is it right for us to make this move? Cultures, people groups, families, individuals are faced with change like that all the time. So you feel this right now in our culture around the issue of marriage, don't you? The, the pressure, the big push right now is to change how we view and do marriage as a culture, to move from the old way of one man, one woman, one life forever to a host of potential new ways of doing marriage. And I know you've seen them talked about same-sex unions, multiple partner unions. Have you seen the human-animal marriage stuff talked about? My real soulmate is my pet. Why can't we have a covenant? Have you seen the time limit marriages? Have you not read about this? We're going to get married. It's a 10-year commitment. Then we will revisit that at year 10 and see how we're doing. This is the conversation, for example, that's happening in your day and your time. And people are unsure, not only because we're like, is a new way of defining or undefining marriage going to work? But also, is it right to do that? There's a hesitancy there. God, human sexuality, creative intent, children, these are deep issues of ethics and of justice if we leap from the old into the new. I could roll out about 10 more examples. You're living through them right now. And so we have citizens and lawmakers and employers and philosophers and educators and judges trying to figure out, do we move from old to new? That intensity, that seriousness. See how quiet it just got in here with that second example? Why? 
because you know that that's not like spreadsheets. That's not like text messages. That is deep, intense cultural change. That is the kind of change that is being presented to us at this part of the book of Acts. Cataclysmic change. If the book of Acts is going to make any sense to you, I need you to feel that Jesus' apostles are calling their Jewish listeners to move from old to new in the most radical, revolutionary, cataclysmic way that is possible. Intense. That's why it would get this quiet during their sermons. Okay, let's talk about that. Would you put yourself in the shoes of an older covenant, God-loving, Moses-obeying, Jerusalem-living Jew on the day of the story that we're going to see today in the book of Acts? Put yourself in their shoes. If that is you, you are heart-faithful to at least two things, two things. One is this, you are devoted to the temple. And by temple, I don't just mean the physical space, I mean the temple and the temple system, everything that went on in the temple. So in your scriptures, Moses has made it perfectly clear that this was a place where the means of God's grace would be known in a special and unique way among his people. This was where God's presence dwelt. This is where the sacrifices were done that would provide the forgiveness of your sins. This is where the priest would come on the day of atonement to atone for the sins of all the people. This is where the festivals and the feasts would take place. This was your central house of prayer. In a very real way, Your salvation was wrapped up in the temple and the temple system. How would you feel if someone started saying to you, hey, it's time to move beyond this temple. This is old. You need to jump into something new. That would be hard to hear, wouldn't it? I don't know about this. You would also be just as devoted, not just to the temple system, but also to the temple authorities, the temple authorities. So we are American Bostonians. We don't really do authority almost in any way, shape, or form. So it's hard for us to feel this one. Let me try and help you with this. These people would have known that the priests and the elders and the rulers of Israel were to be respected and revered and obeyed. God had given them that position of leadership. They owed it to them to follow. You're supposed to submit morally, not just to the temple, but to the temple authorities. And so how would you feel if someone was saying to you, it's okay now for you to disobey and disregard the authorities of Israel. You don't have to listen to or follow or submit to to where they're taking Israel anymore. That would be very hard for you to hear also. I don't know about this. Okay, that is exactly what is happening in our text, exactly. This raggedy band of apostles 
uneducated fishermen from the ghetto up in Galilee with crazy accents. Peter, James, and John, and the nine others, this is what they were calling the people to. They were saying, out with the old, the temple system and her authorities, in with the new, Jesus' gospel and his apostles. That would be revolutionary, cataclysmic, and that is exactly what we are reading through in the early chapters of the book of Acts. The covenant people of God are being swept from Moses to Jesus, from old to new. All right, so if you were one of these older covenant Jews listening to these sermons in the temple from Peter and James and John, what would you need if you were going to take that leap? What would you need if you were going to ride that bike over that ramp? What would you need if you were going to say, I'm in with Jesus, baptize me, I identify with him? You would need somebody to sit with you, like I did with Mr. Hurley, and say, it's going to be okay. God has clearly shown us that this new gospel works in a way that the older covenant could never work, and that these new authorities have been given to you to lead you into life as the true people of God. In our text, this is exactly what God is doing And Luke records for you to see with clarity the assurances that are given that you can jump in with Jesus. All right, so I don't think I've ever done this before, but we're preaching from chapter 3 and 4 and 5 from the book of Acts. You're not going to be able to stick with me, so just try and listen as I do this. And that's how long it takes this story to unfold. We're going to preach through these three chapters all the way through Christmas in smaller chunks, today is the big 10,000-foot 10, overview of them. All right, so this is Jesus giving the apostles the assurances they needed. The first one is this, out with the temple, in with the gospel. All right, the story starts with the healing of a crippled man. I can read from here, so just hear these words. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, a man lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Okay, two things I need you to see. The first one is this, the helpless condition of this man. He is crippled, and he has been since birth. This is not some injury that happened, and maybe he's getting better This is not Paul George who's going to rehab and will be on the court next season. This is a man who has never and will never and can never walk again. All he is able to do is to be carried and laid and beg. That's it. The second thing I need you to see is, where is he laying? Where is this man sitting unhealed, unrestored? Day after day, at the gate, call beautiful, which is an entrance to the temple. That was his spot. He had been there so long, so many decades that everybody knew this cripple guy sits here every day. He was stuck there, right outside the gate, in the shadow of the temple and all of her activities. 
What is Luke saying to you in this story? He is telling you that the temple is standing right there. The temple system is happening two feet away, and it has proven inadequate for this man. At the end of every single day of his life, the temple and that system is powerless to get down and make him whole. Until what happens in the story? Until Jesus' apostles show up bearing the name of Jesus. They come, he asks them for money, they say, we have no money, and then this is how they answer him. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. Leaping, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple, walking, leaping, praising God. And all the people who saw him walking started praising God. They recognized him as the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Okay, what just happened in this story? In an instant, the power of the risen Christ was able to do for this man what decades of sitting outside of the temple could not get done. They drop the name of Jesus on him, and what happens immediately? Complete, instantaneous, permanent, unexpected, wild healing, restoration. And what does the guy do in this story immediately? He stands, and he leaps, and he bounds, and he moonwalks, and he skips, and he cartwheels. And where does Luke tell us that he goes? Through the gate of the temple. What is Luke saying to you? That Jesus and his gospel has the power to do what the temple and the temple system could not. Now, by that, he does not mean that the temple or the temple system were bad. He means that they were inadequate. They were temporary. They were provisional. They were a shadow of the real thing to come. Throughout the New Covenant, as you read the New Testament, you will see this theme beat on over and over again. The older covenant was a pointer to Christ, but it could never accomplish what Christ accomplished. Sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year, day after day, that temple could not save. But Jesus is the one who, through his death and his resurrection and his ascension, fulfilled the temple. So now it is time to move on from this system to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's how Peter would say this later in his sermon. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the corner stone. You feel that? By what means was this man healed? Not by the temple, by Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the cornerstone to a new and permanent temple. How could somebody be sure of that? 
they watched this man stand up and walk. What more could the father do for these people to show off the move from temple to gospel than raise up a man that the temple could never help or heal or restore and send him through those temple gates fully restored? There is no way for the father to give clearer assurance than that. All right, so let's say that you were in this Jerusalem crowd, you were watching this thing happen, and you were starting to go, all right, maybe I believe this message that these raggedy apostles are preaching to me about Jesus. I just saw with my own eyes that the name of Jesus healed a cripple and sent him through the temple gates. But what about the authorities that I'm supposed to submit to? I mean, for me to jump in with you guys would mean for me to rebel against and walk away from the authorities that God has put over me. How would we ever know that we're supposed to align with Jesus' apostles and not with the temple authorities? They need God to give them assurances there as well. And that's what he does in the rest of this story. So in this part, we see Luke is showing off assurances that it's out with the authorities who crucified Christ and in with his apostles. All right, as you could imagine, all this talk about Jesus and being the Christ, the end of the temple, the healing of this man and everyone flocking to the apostles, teaching day after day, week after week, it became an incredible threat to the authorities. The authorities. We notice that in the text. We read this, that the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Oof. What is Luke trying to do with those words right there? He's trying to show you that all the powers were gathered together big long list. They call the apostles in and they say, by what power did you hear this, heal this man? We need to know. So Peter answers them, is Jesus. It's the name of Jesus. He's the one that you've rejected, but he's risen from the dead. He's the son of God. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. All authority and power has been given to him. And here's how they respond to Peter's message They called them, the apostles, and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So here comes the tension in our story right here. The authorities said, you must stop preaching Jesus and his gospel. What are they going to do? Are they going to listen? Are they not going to listen? What happens? Here's Peter's answer. He says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So Peter is saying to them, and Luke is giving us these words to show us, God's going to have to sort this out. Who are the authorities of the true people of God, which direction is this going to go? 
They go back into the temple. They keep preaching Jesus to anyone who will listen. The authorities get mad. Now they start to ratchet up their opposition. Here's what happens next. The high priest rose up. You feel that? He's trying to exalt his place of authority to put the foot down. And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and they put them in the public prison. As you're reading the story, what do you think this signifies? What do you think this means? It's over, right? The high priest rose up with all the powers. They took the apostles. They put them in prison. Who's going to win here? Whose side is God on? When you get to this verse, you should pause for a second and go, everything looks like the apostles are going to look like fools, and the authorities will show the people, yes, we are still in charge. We are still the ones you should be listening to. All right, now hear the rest of this story with me. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and they reported, we found the prison securely locked and the prison guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple was, heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And then I love this. And someone came and said and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Okay, you're not laughing. You should be laughing because this is comedic. All the powers of the full assembly of the authorities of Israel all the prison guards, all the iron bars, all of it could not keep Jesus' apostles from preaching the gospel. We're going to lock them up tight, then we're going to go get them, we're going to bring them before us, and we're going to end this once and for all. Go get them. Bring them in here. And five minutes, ten minutes. 20 minutes, the coffee's getting cold. Where are they? What is going on? Then a little messenger boy comes in and says, Sir, um, uh, the prison's locked tight, but the apostles are not in there. And then just as they're looking at each other flummoxed and confused, another little messenger boy comes in and says, uh, um, The apostles are back in the temple preaching Jesus again. And what is Luke trying to show you? What is he trying to show you? That God is with Jesus' apostles in a way that he is no longer with the supposed powers of Israel. And then, of course, at the end of chapter 5, we see some counsel is given, 
And one of their own says these words to them. He says, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And what happens by the end of this story? They are not able to overthrow them. In fact, I love the way chapter 5 ends. And every day in that temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So I need you to feel that. All these authorities, all their powers, all of their threats, all of their beatings could not hold back the unstoppable apostolic proclamation that the blessings of God are known in the person and the work of Jesus. Thousands and thousands and thousands come to believe in Jesus and be baptized. How could the Father have made this any clearer in the three chapters of this story? If you are looking for assurances that Jesus' gospel works better than the older covenant, he's given it to you. If you are looking for assurances that you can listen to the teaching of the apostles and find life there, he has given that to you in love for you, he has given you every assurance he could as he did these people to say, you can jump in with Jesus and his gospel. All right, so that's three big chapters of Bible cast with big vision for you to get a feel for how Luke is showing this to happen. We'll get into the details later, but let's finish with some application. So the big idea that we're all feeling and hearing is, feel it with these people, We are supposed to leave the old behind and jump all in with Christ. Okay. No one in here that I know of, I don't think so, is an older covenant Jew who is continuing to live by the Mosaic code of sacrifices and atonement and holy days as a means of their salvation. No one in here is being asked by me to jump from that into the gospel error era, E-R-A, because of the promises of God in Christ. But everyone in this room tends to follow systems of salvation that do not have the power of the gospel, and everyone in this room tends to feel the pressure of authorities in our life that draw us away from Jesus and his gospel. That is true for every culture in human history. That is true for you as Bostonians. And so I need you to feel that these stories were given to you for assurances that you can leave these things behind and jump into gospel life, the person and the work of Jesus. So we say it like this. We all have temples in our lives. We all do temples that we keep going back to and going back to and going back to day after day after day. And our lives are lived in the shadow of those temples, but those temples cannot make us whole. It's crucial for you to think of what are the temples in my life that I've been leaning into 
to find salvation, healing, restoration, and joy. You know that long list, right? I can give you some simple examples. So like work and career, that's going to save me, that's going to heal me, that's going to do it for me, that will be my salvation, I will be made well through my accomplishments and the money that comes. And day after day after day, work and career is impotent in healing you, in satisfying you, in making you whole, in restoring you. You just sit there in the shadow hoping, and every day you're still crippled. So Luke is trying to tell you. For some of you, it is a relationship, and you swear that that relationship is going to be the thing that makes you whole, that brings you joy, that does it for you. And you give yourself day after day, week after week, to that relationship, and it's not happening because it can't happen because it doesn't have the power to save. For some of you, it's a philosophy that you will not let go of, and every day of your life, you're laid there, crippled in the shadow of that philosophy, unhealed, unrestored. For some of you, it's good works. I was talking with someone this week who told me they got into education as a way to pay back the universe. It's like, I don't even know what that means, but I know if that's where you're going to find joy and purpose and healing and restoration, the universe or your works, it's not going to happen. None of these can ultimately heal us. But what is Luke saying to you today? Jesus can. Jesus can. If you want to stand up and run and leap and bound with joy in life, it's Jesus. It's the name of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus. There is life there. That's your application today. For some of you, there are spiritual authorities that you still carry in your life who do not want you to go within a thousand miles of Jesus or his gospel, who swear to you that Jesus is a joke, that Christianity is untrue, that the gospel is pathetic and weak and for losers. Maybe for you that's like a literal spiritual authority in your life that comes to mind that is holding you back from repentance and faith in Jesus. For some of us, it is people in our family, in our homes, who reject Jesus and are demanding that we do so as well. For some of you, it's professors who are ungodly but have sway over your soul and you are terrified to not please them, to not do what they say. Whatever that may be, Jesus in his gospel sets you free from those sinful authorities. And he offers you a new authority, himself and his word as his apostles have given it to you. And so you are free this morning to jump in with the Jesus of the scriptures and to break free from those who would hold you back from Christ. It cost some of these apostles their life to do that, but they found eternal life in saying, I'm in with Jesus and not with anyone who would keep me back. That's your application this morning. That is intense and heavy and deep. What I have been praying for you, what Rachel prayed for you this morning when we were praying together, is that the Spirit of God, through the story of this man healed and leaping and running, through the story of the apostles teaching, unstoppable, 
in the face of a prison cell to know that God in Christ is the means of salvation and joy and life for you and you can be assured to jump in with Jesus. As you read through the scriptures in big chunks, hear that gospel message coming through for you. All right, let's pray together. Father, these are heavy and hard words. We love our temples. We swear they're going to make us better tomorrow. Tomorrow's the day. We fear so many who threaten us about following you. I pray that there would be assurances in the life of Seven Mile Road Church that Jesus is the Christ, that he is risen from the dead, that he can heal and restore like no one else can, that his gospel has sped forth across, across this globe and it will forever, and we can be a part of that good news. Father, I am such a doubting man. I thank you for this crippled man who stood up and walked. I thank you that you opened the doors of that prison that day. I thank you that you have made it clear to us that what the apostles have declared to be true is true, that there is life to be found in repentance and in faith of Jesus. Father, I pray for these surrounding cities. I pray for so many who are crippled and broken right now, sitting in the shadow of so many false gospels, false promises. I pray that they would come to hear about the name of Jesus. And in the same way that Peter's shadow was healing the sick, that as they come into the shadow of the teaching of the truth of Christ, they would be made whole. I pray that you would do this and that our eyes would see it and that our hearts would be filled with glory and joy in who you are. Thank you for the way that you have stepped down to give us certainty about following your son. We rejoice in it together today. Amen.